0: So today we're going to be in Mark chapter 16. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 12. So let's open up our Bibles to Mark 16. And we'll be starting in verse 9. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. And he went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking in the country. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the patience that you have with us. As we take a look this morning, Lord, at the text of the disciples' unbelief, we thank you, Lord, that you have been faithful with us, that you have been faithful to us in our Christian walks, that when we have our moments of unbelief, you continue to bless us with your grace in your mercy. So we thank you for all that you've given us, Lord. We confess we fall way short of what you command us to do. But even in that, Lord, your grace is superior, and we thank you for that. Lord, we ask your blessings upon this study this morning in your son's name. Amen. So we see here in Mark 16, the context is Jesus was just crucified on Friday and he was placed in the tomb. We find ourselves now Sunday morning and in our text in Mark 16, we see two different accounts of the disciples' unbelief that Jesus had risen from the dead. The first is from the testimony of Mary Magdalene, who told the disciples that Jesus had appeared to her and the disciples, the disciples for some reason, they didn't believe. The second we see is from the two men, <clears throat> their testimony is believed to be the two men <clears throat> walking on the road to Emmaus Jesus appeared to them and the disciples also disregarded their testimony as well so countless times we th- we see throughout the ministry Jesus told his disciples exactly what was going to take place to the T a lot of times these things were fulfilled right before him so they had no excuse really as to why they would doubt Jesus and in the account here in Mark 16 <clears throat> What is Jesus trying to accomplish through Mary Magdalene and through the two men, through their testimony? What Jesus is trying to do is to comfort and to assure his disciples that he's alive, that he has risen, that he has conquered death. What do the disciples do? They respond out of unbelief. They refuse to believe. So what we see in the account here in Mark 16 is The faithfulness of God on one hand and the unbelief of the disciples on the other, coming head to head. The disciples who saw the miracles, the disciples who witnessed what Jesus did throughout his entire ministry, yet at this crucial point in the gospel narrative, they respond out of unbelief. So taking a couple steps back, looking at the human race as a whole, Why is it so difficult for us as human beings to believe what God says? Why do so many people believe in so many strange and unusual things in order to make sense out of life when the testimony of what the Gospel has always taught about what the Bible has taught is plain and evident before us? As believers in Christ... Why do we still find unbelief within us after God has regenerated us, given us a new heart, poured his Holy Spirit in us, preserved his word for us to read? We have 2,000 years of church history to see the working of God, building his kingdom, just like he said he was going to do, and just like he continues to do. Why is it we have such a hard time taking God at his word? when he has clearly fulfilled and continues to fulfill everything that he said he would do. But before we get into looking at unbelief, we must first understand what believing is. So the question is, what is belief? Belief is more than simply believing and confessing that God exists, or that you believe in God. James 2.19 says, Even the demons believe and tremble. And we know demons are not saved because of their belief in Christ. So when we say belief, it has to mean more than that. Belief is more than simply acknowledging that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. A person can give verbal assent to this. A person can believe believe that it is historically accurate. A person can open up the Bible and say, yes, I believe what is written in there. But this does not necessarily mean that they believe unto the point of being saved. I was driving one time with a relative of mine in the, in the car and we're driving and I'm talking to him about this, about you have to believe in Christ in order to be saved. Faith in the gospel. And this was an individual who was raised in the church. He heard the Bible message many times. And he says, yes, I believe. Of course I do. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I would say this over and over as I was talking. And what I was trying to demonstrate is the nature of true faith, the nature of saving faith, versus that of just giving verbal or intellectual assent, believing that it took place, or believing, or just making a confession that you believe in that. And this can be a very difficult distinction to make. People can confuse these two, and we have to be careful in how we articulate this. What you can see in a person, in the person on my relative that I was talking to about this, is they make this confession of faith as though they're saved, but we don't see the joy. They don't see the passion of the Word of God in their life. Don't see the desire for Christian fellowship, surrendering and submitting to the law of God. You don't see a change of heart in the individual who just makes verbal assent. Rather, individuals just carry on with everyday life, with the flow of the world, and with the flow of everything else, without any true conviction of sin. Belief, or saving faith, what it actually is, is placing your absolute trust in who Jesus is, what he accomplished, and everything he said. It goes beyond merely acknowledgement. It goes beyond merely verbal assent. It is the complete submission of your will to God's will. When we believe in Christ in a manner that brings about salvation, we embrace Christ with our entire heart, our entire mind, our entire soul. It's life-changing. It's a paradigm shift in our life that has eternal results. Belief is setting aside what we think we know, what we think we can do for ourselves, and placing our trust in what God has done for us alone. So this is the nature of saving faith. This is the nature of belief. But what about those who refuse? Who've heard the gospel and continue on in their unbelief? We just saw what manner of belief is. So what is the nature of unbelief? The nature of unbelief, it is the foundation by which all other sins rest upon. It was introduced into the human race by Adam in the Garden of Eden, and it has been destroying us ever since. Unbelief in what God has said is what brought sin and death into the world. And it is only by belief, true saving faith, that one receives forgiveness for their sins. Jesus said in John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So this is something we cannot earn. This is something we have to trust completely in God for. And since belief is the only way to attain salvation, unbelief is the cause for our condemnation. Jesus said in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon them. Unbelief is the reason why a person stands condemned before God. And will stand before God on judgment in the last day. It is what brought about original sin. Remember in Genesis 3, in the account of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve believed what? The testimony of Satan over the testimony of God. Satan came about and questioned what God said. They followed the serpent. Unbelief is brought what brought original sin into the human race. All other sins that we commit, they add to our condemnation. But it is unbelief that puts us at enmity with God. Disobeying the command of Jesus to believe, if we think about the nature of unbelief, is the most disgusting and hateful thing a person can do to God. Because the grace that is being freely offered to us in the gospel is being thrown right back into the face of God. The sin of rejecting the gospel call is more serious than all of the other sins. And you may ask why. Because the personal relationship that God is offering to the individual, his sacrifice on the cross, is being trampled under the foot of man in unbelief. So if we think of the law, the Ten Commandments, They tell us what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. In keeping the law, we are only doing what is required. But rejecting the gospel call, we're telling Jesus that we are not interested in him. That we don't want that relationship with him. That we desire our own way of life and we enjoy our sins more than having our relationship restored with God. And this is the seriousness of the sin of unbelief. Now in 1 John 5.10, it says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne born concerning his Son. So unbelief is a sin against God's very own testimony. It stops the current of God's love to flow into our lives. It closes the wounds of Christ so we cannot be fully healed. And the person who rejects the gospel makes God out to be a liar. How is this? When a person refuses to believe, what they're saying is that the testimony of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is not true. They're saying that God is a liar and cannot be fully trusted. Hebrews 6:18 says this: It is impossible for God to lie. God guaranteed the truthfulness of his word by swearing an oath. And since there is nobody higher for God to swear an oath to, he swore by himself. In other words, what God is saying is, is his word is his bond. It is impossible for him to do anything else than what he has said he would do. It's impossible for God to lie. And to reject the gospel in unbelief is to do just that it's to call God a liar. It's to say that, no, God, you aren't correct. I know better than what you do. My reasoning process, my ability to discern things, my ability to think through problems, my ability to save myself, whatever it is we think we have within us is greater than what Jesus has said and done in his word. So by saying no to the gospel, what a person is saying is just that, that their reason and ability to make their own decisions are better than what God has provided himself his own blood that a person is saying that the bible is untrustworthy that's why unbelief is the most wretched sin we can think of it prevents the reconciliation between god and man it takes the work of the cross and throws it right back at him and says no god i know better but in our text here in mark who are we dealing with Are we dealing with believers or are we dealing with unbelievers? We're dealing with the disciples. They were believers in Christ. They trusted in Jesus for their salvation. And yet, how did they respond to Mary Magdalene? They didn't believe her testimony. They didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Even though they had saving faith in Christ, they still had unbelief as well. But this is the difference, is that their unbelief, having already been forgiven of their sins, does not nullify their salvation. Rather, it shows areas in their life where they were weak. Areas in their life where they needed to grow. So, what we see here is the unbelief of the believer. Somebody who has confessed somebody who has been regenerated. So they have believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God unto salvation. But unbelief does not end there. And we see this in Mark 16.10. She, referring to Mary Magdalene, went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. Notice they're crying. It's easy for us to sit back and to beat up on the disciples over what we're reading here. They do care for Jesus. They do believe that he is the Son of God. They, no doubt, they're saved. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in the Upper Room Discourse. In John 16, 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And this is exactly what we're starting to see here. They were weeping. They were mourning, just like Jesus said. He's always right. So how is their sorrow going to be turned into joy? And that's what we see in the resurrection. And that's what we see Mary Magdalene trying to tell them. And that's what we see the two men on the road to Emmaus trying to tell them that Jesus has rose from the dead. But at the moment, Mary's testimony and the testimony of the other two men was overshadowed by their lack of faith. It was overshadowed by their unbelief. And that's why we see in verse 11, but when they heard that he was alive and that had been seen by her, they would not believe. To think about these two things separately, belief and unbelief. As believers, both of these reside within our hearts at the exact same time. Christ, having worked faith into our hearts, regenerated us. This is what enabled us to believe in the first place, unto salvation. But the sin that remains in our hearts is the source for our unbelief. And we have both of this within us. With our faith comes a mixture of unbelief as well. Puritan author Thomas Watson said this, As bad lungs cause asthma, or shortness of breath so has original sin infected our respiratory system causing us to breathe in grace very faintly when we get right down to it if we were to analyze if we were able to take a look at our sin underneath a microscope what would we see how strong Is our faith when we really start to break down all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our actions on a daily basis and to analyze it, how strong is our faith? Do we really believe, for an example, that God works out all things for those who believe in him? And the answer is yes, we believe that. Question is, is why is it so difficult then when trials come about in our lives to count it all joy and not to worry why do we become frustrated when things don't go as planned or why do we worry when financial situations come about is an example of what's been going on lately a spread of a virus a bad economy a two-month quarantine these things frustrate us they anger us and in one sense we understand that but in another sense If God says he works out all things for our good, why does this create unbelief and anxiety in our lives? The question is, do we really believe that God works out all things for our good? And we'll confess, yes, we do. But if we take and analyze our heart on a daily basis, we're going to find all sorts of times when we respond to the exact opposite of what we confess. Do we really believe that all of our sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, and we're going to say, yes, we do, absolutely. Well, have you, ever doubt, have you ever doubted your salvation? Have you ever sinned so bad that you think God has rejected you? If we've ever had our doubts about salvation and our doubts about assurance, what we're really saying is Jesus' completed work on the cross isn't enough. That I can outsin the grace of God. And when this unbelief starts to enter into our hearts, we start to doubt what God has said in His Word. We start to doubt the power of the blood of Christ. So, do we really believe that Jesus Christ died for all of our sins? And yes, we say we do. But then, if we analyze our hearts on a daily basis, I'm sure we'll find times when we have doubt and unbelief in this as well. Calvin said this He said, The human heart has so many crannies. Where vanity hides, so many holes where falsehood lurks. It's so decked out with deceiving hypocrisy that it often dupes itself. This is why we must recognize the dual nature within us the grace that God has given us to believe, and the sin that lies within us that causes us not to believe. So we ask ourselves, what is the cure for this? And it's in our sanctification. Our salvation took took place the moment we believed. And now we must continue to grow in our grace and in our faith and in our knowledge of Christ, just like the disciples had to as well. We see in Mark 15, the crucifixion. Where were the disciples? They were nowhere to be found. We see here in Mark chapter 16, what was the action of the disciples? They didn't believe the testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead. But if we go just a couple of weeks into the future, to the day of Pentecost, what do we see the disciples doing there? They began to turn the world upside down. So they had a growth in their faith. They had a growth in their knowledge. What they didn't believe before, they fully believed after. It was a growing process with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see here in the Scriptures as well. If you could turn with me to Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, what we see here is an excellent example of this, the progressive work of the grace of God in our lives. So we see at regeneration, we receive saving faith. We are saved at that moment, but there is a growing process. There is still sin in our hearts. There's still unbelief in our hearts. And these type of things need to be worked out in our sanctification. And in Mark chapter 4, we see a good example of this. In verse 28, it says, the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. So this can be used as an analogy of our spiritual growth. First, we see the blade. When a person is drawn to God, we call this the effectual call, the moment of salvation. They're reborn. They receive the new heart. The Lord works faith into their hearts, and the person believes. So we see an entirely new um, convert in the Lord they now start to understand spiritual things. They now start to understand their sin. They're able to recognize what offends God. The word of God becomes alive to them. They have this fresh new zeal. And the process of dying to their old sins now begins. So we saw the blade. Now we see the ear. The ear represents our spiritual growth in the Lord. As we remain in the word, as we remain participating in the sacraments and in prayer, we grow in our grace and in our knowledge of the Lord. Our identity, our understanding, it becomes more sure. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, they more clearly reflect the character of God. When we experience difficult trials in life, things that hit us right to the core of our soul, what that's doing is it's exposing deeply-rooted sin that we may not see, that we may not recognize, that we may not want to deal with. But through these trials, the Lord is helping to work that out. So we go through this process of sanctification, of trials in our life, where God is exposing the sin in our hearts, flushing this out. We begin to hate these sins. We begin to recognize these sins. And we pursue more towards holiness, more towards the character of God. That's the ear. The third... The full grain, it's when we reach spiritual maturity. This is the point where the gospel is grasped in a solid manner and it's realized. Where we have grown through many trials in life, many circumstances in life, our faith has become more solid. When di- difficult circumstances arise, we don't panic. Not anymore. We remain calm. Knowing we've been down this road before, We're aware that at this time, pride can easily set in. So we humbly cast ourselves at the feet of the Lord, knowing that in our weakness is where we're made strong in Christ. It's through our weakness that the Lord works through us. So during our Christian walk, I guarantee that the Lord is working to rebuke the unbelief that's in our hearts. He has no other intention other than to uproot that from our hearts and to sanctify us in him. So a way of understanding this is if our faith is not growing, then our unbelief will be. If we are not continually growing in our sanctification, we can enter into a point where we're actually backsliding in our Christian walk. This is why this is a daily battle. It's a daily struggle. We daily have to be at the feet of the Lord in prayer, in devotions, and service to him. So the question is, is, do you struggle with unbelief? If you're honest, you'll say yes. It affects every one of us. Nobody's immune to unbelief. As long as we're living in these sinful bodies, we are going to struggle with this. So points of application to take away from this. I have four of them listed here. The first is Jude verse 22. It tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. We're so quick to judge others when we see a lack of faith or when we see some unbelief in their life, as if we have never struggled with this, as if that we are in a higher position, that we have to come down on somebody ultra hard when we see this in their lives. So then rather than judging the person, what we need to do is comfort and support them in their time of trial. Most of these instances that people go through these times of unbelief, they're temporary. The problem goes away after a while. It may be that the person's just going through a difficult time in life. We need to be patient and walk side by side somebody who's going through a season of unbelief, knowing that this is a trial that the Lord is bringing them through to expose more sin and to create more growth in their life. Second, Unbelief is normally a sign of faith being tested. This results in more growth, not less. Like a person training for an athletic competition, they break their bodies down, they get built up stronger. They break their bodies down again, they get built up stronger. They do this for a period of time so when they enter into the competition, their bodies are ready. They're set for what's coming before them. The same thing is true in our spiritual walk. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. And if He sees unbelief in our hearts, if He sees areas in our life where we are weak and we need to grow, just like we saw with the disciples, He'll bring about a trial to come to flush that out and to help us grow in Him and reflect His image even more. Three, accept the fact that we do not have all of the answers. God has given us the Bible, which is sufficient, meaning it contains everything necessary for our Christian lives. This does not mean it's an answer manual to all of the problems that we face. There are going to be times where we don't have answers to our questions. And this is where our faith comes in, our belief, that even if we don't have the answer, we're trusting in God that he's working everything out for our good. So we do. the question is, is, do we trust God in the secret things that he has kept to himself? If he has been faithful in every single thing that he has revealed to us, we can be assured that he's going to be faithful in those things which he has kept to himself. And a lot of times this frustrates people. Those secret things that we don't have the answer to can create a bitter root in our heart where we become mad at God that we don't have the answer. And this is where faith has to come in, trusting that the hand of God is upon us on the things that we know about and upon the things that we are not sure. And fourth, continue to abide in the vine. We bear fruit because we're connected to the vine, not because of our own abilities. When things don't seem to make sense from our perspective, we must continue to delight in the Lord regardless. Our strength comes from Him. It doesn't come from within ourselves. And this is the first thing that Satan is going to want to attack in our lives, our devotion, our delight, our sincere service to the Lord. If he can get us to doubt, What he's doing is he's tying a knot in that vine, causing us a lack of growth and a lack of our source of spiritual nourishment. When these trials come about, we need more grace. We need more devotion. We need more delight in the word, not less. And our natural tendency, when we come into a season of doubt for whatever reasons come about, is to back off from God, not to pursue him more. So in conclusion, if we can turn to Lamentations chapter 3, I'm going to close with a scripture reading. And what we see here in this account is that Thomas is not the only disciple who doubted. They all did. The same is true for every believer over the past 2,000 years as well. But this does not minimize the seriousness of unbelief in our lives. We need to continually grow and be refreshed and reassured through God's word to continue to grow in our faith and grace and knowledge of him. So in Lamentations chapter 3, we're going to read verses 24 through 32, and then we'll pray. And what we see here, I think, is a, portion of scripture that may hit home right now at this present moment as we're dealing with the coronavirus coronavirus and the circumstances that surround it. So verse 24 says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that he may yet hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with the insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love.